Well, you know, when Jesus Christ walked on this earth as a man, <clears throat> everything that he did was for someone else. He never did anything solely for his own benefit, and in that he lived really the, the quintessential life of sacrifice to the point that ultimately he not only lived his life for others, but he gave it away, of course, for others as well because he was sent here on a mission. And he was given everything that he needed to carry out that mission so that his time here wasn't simply about him uh, trying to experience the best life that he possibly could for as long as he possibly could. No, Jesus, he lived his life constantly focused on the mission before him. For him, it was never about comfort or security or wealth or prominence or possessions or popularity, even success uh, as defined by the culture around him. On the contrary, his life was all about giving what he had away to others, including his life itself in the end. Jesus gave all that he had for the sake of others. And yet, do you know that every single thing that Jesus gave came from something he received? He said, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. The words I say, I do not speak in my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. John 14, 10. In John 5, 26, Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. John 16, 15, he said, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. John 5, 19 and 20, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. John 14, 31, he said, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. John 3.35, John the Baptist said the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 3.27, he said a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. And then in John 13.3-5, and what has to be one of the single greatest examples of Jesus giving to others out of all that the Father had given him, John says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Hard, it's hard for me to fathom that. This was the greatest act of humility condescension, really, and servanthood that anyone could ever perform aside from the crucifixion itself. Washing other people's feet was a job for the lowest servant possible in first century Hebrew culture, and yet here was Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, the Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life he was with the Father and the Holy Spirit creating the heavens and the earth from the beginning and here he is down on his knees washing the filth off the feet of the men who followed him. Everything Jesus had, 
he gave to someone else, and everything that he gave came from something that he received. And yet we talk so much in modern uh, church culture today about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that I'm afraid sometimes the focus has become more on us and what we receive, what we've been given, rather than on him and what we're supposed to be giving away. But listen, the Christian life isn't just about me and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus being sent here on a mission and we've been given everything that we need to carry out that mission so that this life is no longer about what I can do for myself or what I can get for myself or what I can achieve for myself. No, it's about giving away what has been given to me so that others can have what I've been given. The Apostle Paul, speaking of believers, he said, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. 2 Corinthians 9, 11. In other words, the reason God gives you good gifts as you abide in him is so that you can be generous with those gifts. We get so that we can give. You know, we're, most certainly we're blessed and immeasurably so as Christians. And of course God wants us to enjoy those blessings. But look, if that's as far as it goes then we're missing the point of why we've been sent here because the primary reason we receive good gifts from God is to give those gifts away to others. I'm, I'm talking principally here about spiritual gifts, although uh, physical gifts can be included as a part of that, but the primary reason we're given good gifts from God is to give to others out of that which we've been given. Everything that Jesus had, he gave to someone else and everything that he gave came from something he received. And so if we're to follow his example, which is precisely what we're, of course, all called to do, then we need to be asking ourselves with complete honesty, am I on mission here? Is my life on mission? Am I doing what I was sent here to do? And one way to tell, one litmus test for answering that question is whether or not you're continually giving away what God has given to you. Because if you're not, listen, if you're not, then you're most definitely not on mission. You're not doing what God sent you here to do. If God has given you new life, are you sharing that life with others? Because if you're not, you're not doing what he sent you here to do. If God has given you love, and you're not sharing that love of Christ with others, then, then you're not doing what he sent you here to do. If God has given you grace, are you sharing that grace with others? Because if not, then you're not doing what he sent you here to do because everything that you have, you're supposed to give to someone else because everything that you have was given to you by God for that very purpose. And so today, as we continue working our way through these letters of John, we find the apostle John through about a chapter and a half describing what happens in our lives when we abide in God, as we choose to abide in him, he abides in us. And the result of that is that he fills us with all of these good things, these good gifts. There's six of those gifts that John specifically talks about, three of which we covered last week, where John describes the effects that those gifts can have in our lives as we abide in God. So if you're, if you're uh, keeping an outline, last week John taught us, number one, that when you abide in him, his truth abides in you. Number two, when you abide in him, his spirit abides in you. And number three, when you abide in him, 
his righteousness abides in you. And again, through those first three points, he's really focusing on the effect that those gifts from God have in our lives. Yet today, as we work through the rest of chapter 3, which covers the other three points that John makes about abiding in God, he turns the focus from what that abiding does in us to what that abiding is meant to do through us for the sake of others. It's a bit of, pro of a progression where John is teaching the church that what the Christian's life will look like when we truly abide in God. And again, just to catch you up if you weren't here uh, last week, the word abide that John uses over and over here in the ancient Greek is the word meno. It means to remain, right? So actually, abiding in God is not the picture of someone who merely shows up to church uh, once a week or says a prayer once a day or, or merely draws near to God when there's a problem in their life. No, someone who abides in God is someone who is remaining in him in everything that we do. So, uh, so in everything that we do, we pray, right? In everything that we do, we meditate on God's word. In everything we do, we listen for the voice of his spirit within us to guide and direct us every single day. We remain, we abide in him, we go to him, we draw near, and we stay there. And when we do that, John says that God abides in us, which is completely life-transforming for the believer. But look, it doesn't stop there, because as we'll see today, we then have a responsibility to share with other people what God has given us as we abide in him. So let's, let's pick up the letter right where we left off last week at 1 John chapter 3, and we'll start by reading verses 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not abide in whoever does not abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So uh, interestingly, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 3, which uh, we looked at last week, the very first thing that John says in verse 1 is, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And then he goes on for the next 10 verses to describe what those gifts uh, are that the Father has given to us as we abide in him. But here in verse 11, beginning with this new section of the letter, instead of saying, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, John says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So he really sets the tone here for each section of the letter by these opening statements. And as we'll see, based on verse 11 here, John is now shifting from uh, not only teaching us what we get from God when we abide in him, but again, how we are to give those gifts away to others. And so he uses Cain, who murdered his own brother as an example of pure hatred from those who were in the world toward those who abide in God. He says that Cain had death abiding in him, but for followers of Christ, John says when you abide in him, his eternal life abides in you. This is uh, diametrically opposed to the state of those who abide outside of Christ. And so in verse 13, John says, hey, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 
Of course, Jesus himself told his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 15, 18 and 19, which means nothing about the world hating us should surprise or offend us at all. Yet it seems to do both in our church culture today to the point that we're desperate for the world to like us. So much so that some elements of the church have really gone to great lengths to try and make people outside of the faith like us. Even to the point of changing the gospel message itself so as not to offend the, the sensitivities of anyone who may not agree with the actual teachings of Scripture. Sure, we can modify the gospel to the point that no one is offended by it. Sure we can, because nobody has a problem with a Jesus who will meet them on their own terms. Long as we get to define which areas of our lives can be affected by the gospel and which areas are off limits to Jesus, then no one is offended and everyone likes us. It's an easy gospel that requires nothing of us other than to be likable people, which is exactly, by the way, what the world is telling the church to be today. Just shut up and be nice, right? Don't tell us we have to change. Don't tell us that following Christ will require us to live a life of sacrifice and self-denial. Don't tell us people will hate us just for being a Christian. Just be nice and tell us the parts that we want to hear. Which, by the way, sounds really loving. When actually the very opposite is true. Because there's nothing more hate-filled that a believer and follower of Jesus Christ could ever do than to experience new life in him and then not share it with other people. And yet that is exactly what we're doing when we take the power of a life-transforming gospel which requires us to lay down our very lives and give away all that we have just to follow Jesus and instead we turn it into a weak, feckless, impotent, worthless message that challenges nothing in our lives, transforms no one's heart, and cannot save a single soul, but at least no one is offended. That is the very definition of hate. And that's precisely what Serenthus, this false teacher that we've been learning about the last few weeks and his followers, that's exactly what they were doing to the gospel in John's church. So John's pleading with his congregation, don't fall for it. Don't give in to an easy gospel that requires nothing from you. And by the way, guys, don't be surprised or afraid when the world hates you because they will hate you when you stand for the truth that abides in you as you abide in Jesus Christ. And John says it's okay anyway because when you abide in him, his eternal life abides in you also. In John 17, 3, Jesus said this is eternal life, that they know you. He's praying to the Father. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, when you abide in God, his eternal life abides in you. And so if you're going to truly love your fellow man, that will mean sharing that life with them unashamedly and without qualification or modification. 
Loving each other means sharing the unadulterated truth of Jesus Christ and what it really means to follow him. And in the process, look, some people will most assuredly be offended. The Apostle Peter, quoting from Isaiah, said that Jesus was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Then he went on to say that unbelievers stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, 1 Peter 2.8. In other words, hey, the gospel will offend some people because it's supposed to. So no one in the church should be surprised by this, and yet we also shouldn't be unaffected by it. Not because we're desperate for everyone to like us, but because we're desperate that no one spend eternity apart from Jesus Christ. Our hearts should burn for the lost. There should be such a yearning inside of us to share the life of Christ which abides in us as we abide in him. There should be such a yearning to share that life with others that we're more than willing to be hated if that's what it takes to share that new life, that eternal life with those who are lost. Look, by the way, eternal life is not simply some uh, unending extension of a slightly better version of this life. No, eternal life in Christ is an entirely new life, one where we become new creations in Christ as we abide in him, one that fills in all the missing pieces that we lack and we don't have the spirit of Christ living inside of us. Those are the missing pieces that everyone is searching for outside of Christ, which can only be satisfied when we share that eternal life that we've been given with them. There's a second century uh, apocryphal writing called the Testament of Gad. It has a great description of the difference between love and hate in God's people, and it applies perfectly to the life that we have in Christ today and the sure death that comes apart from him. It says, for as love would quicken even the dead and would call back them that are condemned to die, so hatred would slay the living and those that had sinned venially it would not suffer to live. For the spirit of hatred worketh together for Satan through hastiness of spirit and all things to men's death. But the spirit of love worketh together with the law of God in a long suffering unto the salvation of men. Loving our fellow man means sharing that eternal life that we've been given with them as we abide in him. And when we do that, not even death itself can keep them from the love of God. It's what John talks about next. Let's keep reading, verses 16 through 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So these followers of Serenthus, they were, they were all talk. They had much to say, and actually they had some compelling arguments which later developed into Gnosticism. It's, uh, it's a religious mysticism, a heresy, really, that required very little of its followers but promised eternal life through divine enlightenment, which they claimed was derived from within themselves apart from Jesus Christ. So they talked a really good game. But when it came down to it, their actions revealed nothing more than self-worship. Right? They lived for themselves. They denied the teachings of Christ while claiming to be his followers. Did you know that they never actually called themselves Gnostics? They called themselves Christians. 
And they paraded around in the churches trying to convince people to follow this false teaching. It's why John writes so extensively to the church addressing these false teachers because they were claiming to be believers, but they weren't true followers of Christ. And so, hey, John says, look, guys, the proof's in the pudding. Just look at how a person uh, who claims to follow Jesus Christ, look at how they actually live their life. By that, you can tell who is who. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, you tell me, how does God's love abide in him? The Gnostics were selfish. They were completely self-centered people living solely for themselves and yet claiming to be followers of Christ. But John says their behavior betrays them because when you abide in him, his love abides in you. His love, incidentally, is starkly different than the love of the world. Right? There's a profound difference between the love that the world offers to others and the love that followers of Jesus Christ offer to others. And yet it has nothing to do with sincerity. Okay, The world can love just as sincerely as any believer. It has nothing to do with depth of emotion, for the world can love with just as much emotion as any of us. It has nothing to do with effort. The world can put forth just as much effort in loving someone else as any believer. The difference between the love that the world offers and the love that followers of Jesus Christ can offer is the source of that love. You see, someone who does not abide in Christ has not the spirit of Christ abiding in him, which means uh, the love that that person may offer can only reach so far, last so long, and accomplish so much as their finite abilities and existence on this earth will allow because they are their own source of love. For the one who has the spirit of Christ within himself, however, the source that he draws from is limitless, matchless. It is unequaled and eternal. When we abide in Christ, our source of love cannot be contained, it cannot be limited, it cannot be destroyed, and it cannot be defeated. You know why the apostle Peter said that love covers a multitude of sins? It's because our source of love is Jesus Christ and he's already covered our sins by his love, right? For by this we know love, John says, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, our love for one another isn't based on what we're able to do, no. Our love for one another is based on what he has already done. A.W. Tozer once wrote, because God is self-existent, his love has no beginning. Because he's eternal, his love can have no end. Because he is infinite, it has no limit. Because he's holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because he is immense, his love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea before which we kneel in joyful silence and from which the loftiest eloquence retreats confused and abashed. You see, when we abide in him, the love that we have available to us The love that we can offer to others comes from the very source of love itself. And in that, we offer a love to other people which can be found nowhere else. Which means all you need to do to tell if someone's love is genuine is just see how they live it out. Because true love expends itself. It it exhausts itself in the interest of others. 
it lays its life down for others, while at the same time, you'll find some even in the church who claim to be followers of Christ, who claim to love others, but when it comes down to it, they only love themselves. They only serve themselves. They only look to their own interest, even though they're surrounded by people in need. This is what John was pointing out to his congregation, which is as relevant today as it was then. As John says, hey, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Of course, you understand that what we do with our uh, time and money and our, our talents and our effort, what we give to others is the evidence of our love, not the basis of our love. Because again, the source of our love is Jesus Christ. And yet, if we truly have Christ abiding in us and we abide in him, then there will be plenty of evidence to point to in our lives. Evidence of his love in us as we lay down our lives for one another. David Gusick said, we often consider ourselves ready to lay our lives down in one great dramatic heroic gesture. But for most, God calls us to lay down our lives piece by piece, little by little, in small but important ways every day. In other words, laying down our lives for each other isn't just about taking a bullet for someone. It's actually as simple as, as putting your own life on pause while you attend to someone else's need before you take care of your own. It's making sure you take time to make a meal for someone who's hurting or in need. It's giving a ride to someone who can't get to church or to the grocery store on their own. It's holding your tongue when someone lashes out at you for your Christian witness and instead being kind and gracious even in the face of hate itself. It's providing for others who have no means to ever pay us back. It's being a good neighbor when the feeling isn't mutual. It's taking time to find out how people are really doing and then doing something about it when they're not doing well. In short, laying your life down for others is sharing the love that Jesus Christ has given to you, a love that you didn't deserve. It's sharing that love with others who equally don't deserve it. And it's far more than talk. True love has legs that go where the need is greatest. True love has arms that hold those who are the most desperate. True love has hands that provide for those who cannot provide for themselves. True love is far more than talk. C.S. Lewis wrote, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. I think it's time as his church that we asked ourselves, how much am I actually sharing what Christ has given to me? The answer will be easily recognizable in how you're actually living your life on a daily basis, in how you're giving and what you're giving to. Because when we abide in him, his love abides in us so that we can share it with others who need to be reconciled with him by that very love. Let's finish reading the chapter, verse 19 to the end. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. 
For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. At a, at a casual reading, the first part of this last section of the chapter seems a little bit of a departure from the overall theme of verses 11 through 24 that we're working through today, which is when you truly abide in God, we will love one another by sharing with others what he's given to us. But when you read uh, verses 20 through 22 here, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. But whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. At first glance, it seems a little out of place with the text just before it and just after it, but it's actually not out of place at all. In fact, it's a continuation of what John has been teaching all along. You see, when, when he says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. In verse 19, he's directly referring back to verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, he says, hey guys, the way we will know that we truly abide in Christ is when we actually do something about it rather than just talking about it all the time. It leads us into verses 20 through 22, which uh, John is taking right out of Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 9, which says, if, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you'd be guilty of sin. So every uh, seventh year uh, in Israel was a sabbatical year, meaning, among other things, that those with debts were forgiven those debts. It was an expression of God's grace toward his people. But what was happening was every time the sabbatical year drew near, people would stop lending to the poor because they knew they would probably never get their money back. So God was saying, hey, I want you to give to those in need anyway. Don't shut your heart toward your fellow man, even when they can't pay you back. And so in verses 20 through 22 of John's letter here, he's simply reminding the church of this original command by God in Deuteronomy as to how we are to treat people around us who are in need. The grace that we're to extend to others even when they don't deserve it and cannot pay us back. So when John says, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. He's referring to Deuteronomy 15, 9. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. And you look grudgingly on your brother and you give him nothing and he cries out to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. This whole passage is John simply hammering home the point to the church that we need to be exceedingly careful that we as Christians are not all talk and no action, because when you abide in him, his grace abides in you. 
That's why John says, if your heart does not condemn you, or if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in his, uh, in his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. So when we extend God's grace, which has been given to us, when we extend that grace to others, we experience confidence rather than condemnation because by offering his grace to others through our faith in him, we're obeying his command to love one another. But you see, the Gnostics were spreading a false gospel which required them to do nothing for anyone else but themselves. They were self-condemned because of their disobedience to God's command to share the life and the love and the grace of Jesus Christ to others. And so John was warning the church not to be like those who withhold grace from each other, okay? Unless you live in a vacuum, in complete isolation from other human beings your entire life, then you are going to experience other people at times letting you down. I'm sure I don't have to tell you that, right? Why? Because we're all human. We all fail, and we will all fail each other at times. Even the people who love you the most will fail you from time to time. That is as inevitable as death and taxes. It is a surety in your life, in fact, that people will fail you at times. So first of all, we just need to accept that fact, take a deep breath, and continue showing grace to one another because quite frankly, it is alarming to me. The number of professing Christians today who are shocked and outraged when other people fail them as if something extraordinary has happened to them. And yet the only thing more alarming than that is how few of those shocked and outraged Christians are willing to extend even one ounce of grace toward those who have failed them as if they themselves have never experienced grace in their own lives. Are you kidding me? We've been so saturated by the victim mentality that has become so pervasive in our culture to the point that we think everybody owes us something. Listen, Jesus Christ didn't owe us one thing. In fact, mankind owes him everything, and yet we killed him in the most horrific way simply for speaking the truth to us. But instead of giving us what we deserved for what had to be the most epic failure ever committed in the history of humankind, he chose to save us by his grace instead. And what did he save us from? He saved us from what we deserved, the wrath of God, which is infinitely more horrible than any hell we could ever imagine. That is what we all deserve, but because Jesus loves us so much, he gave us his life and his love and his grace to save us from what should have been our fate. And now all that he's asking in return is that we do the same for others so that they too can experience his life and his love and his grace, but listen, how likely are people who do not know Jesus, how likely are they to want to know him when the people who claim to know him act nothing like him? How can we possibly claim to abide in Christ if his grace isn't abiding in us? Right? When someone fails us, our immediate response should always default to grace. That doesn't mean there won't be consequences 
for their actions. That doesn't mean we wink at sin and pretend it isn't important. No, that doesn't mean we ignore the hurt that others have caused us and act like we're fine when in fact we're not. But throughout the entire process of working through those hurts and failures with others, our hearts must be full of grace toward them, always ready to forgive and once again offer our lives and our love without reservation, for that is what Jesus did for us. Okay, it's a simple question really. Does my life, the way that I live my life every day, does it emanate his life? Does it emanate his love and his grace to others? Or is it all talk and no action? Remember, everything that Jesus had, he gave to someone else, and everything that he gave came from something that he received. How much have we received from him? How much have we received from him? Unending life, undeserved love, and unmerited grace. And yet as Christians, we talk about having a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as we should. But that doesn't mean the focus of our lives is simply on that relationship alone, apart from any responsibility for what we're to do with that relationship. Because the Christian life isn't just about me and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus and this world. We were sent here on a mission and we've been given everything that we need to carry out that mission so that this life is no longer just about what I can do for myself or what I can get for myself or what I can achieve for myself. No, it's about giving away what has been given to me so that others can have what I've been given. And the truth is, there is one way, there's only one way that you will ever be able to live that kind of life. Because you'll never be able to give like that out of your own resources, out of your own ability. Eventually, you'll burn out and run out of things to offer. Happens every day. But when you give out of what you've received from Christ, that is an unending supply. It never runs dry because there is an endless, unbroken fountain of life and love and grace that he pours into you as you abide in him. Let's pray.